Welcome to Unlikable Female Characters, the podcast featuring feminist thriller writers in conversation about female characters who don't give a damn if you like them. I'm Lane Fargo, and today I am thrilled to be interviewing Sarah Sliger. Sarah is an author and academic based in Los Angeles, where she teaches English and creative writing as a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Southern California. And her debut novel, Take Me Apart, comes out on April 28th. Welcome, Sarah. Hi, thank you, Lane. It's so exciting to be here. We're so thrilled to have you. Um, I love your book. I picked up, as you know, I picked up uh, an advanced copy at BoucherCon, the mystery convention, last fall and started reading it on my way home and just became like completely obsessed and then just like slid into your DMs and was really obnoxious, I'm sure. (laughs) But I love, love, love this book. Um, So could you tell our listeners a a little bit about what the book is about, what inspired it? Yeah, absolutely. And also just to say it was not annoying at all. I always love being told that my book is great. I appreciate that so much. It's so kind. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, so my book is called Take Me Apart, and it's a literary thriller about an archivist who becomes obsessed with uncovering the mystery of um, a photographer's death. Um, a photographer from the 1980s who was sort of known for um, these really feminist and controversial um artworks and who then sort of died in this mysterious way. So it sort of goes back and forth between the archivist story and the photographer's story, um, which is told through the kind of documents that she left behind. Um, So it has like some elements of suspense and um, some a little romance. what else would I say about it? Yeah, I mean, I feel like those are the, those are the main points. Um, and it's set in Northern California, and it has this, like, kind of very atmospheric setting that I like to, I like to kind of call the beach gothic theme. Oh, I love that. Yeah. That's perfect. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, we should definitely talk about the gothic themes, because that was something I picked up on immediately. Like, the the romance in it is, is very gothic. The sort of uh, love interest, Theo, who's the son of, of the photographer. He's like, I, I don't know, this is like the kind of man I love to read about in fiction. He's all like intense and brooding and he has secrets and he's like, don't go into this part of the house, but he won't tell her why. Like, I love that shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in real life, you're like, maybe I don't actually want to be with a brooding, you know, person who prevents me from going into parts of the house. But in fiction, it can be very appealing. Yeah, in fiction. Absolutely. Yeah. In real life, I, I like I like nice guys. My partner is the nicest guy in the world. But in fiction, I just I love that. Like there's a moment earlier on in the book where he feel like grabs Kate's wrist and is holding on to it. And I was like, oh, this is so hot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I definitely think there's something um, very sort of sensual and intense about um, his secrecy. And you sort of know, I guess, from the beginning that there are some really high stakes for him and what he's hiding um, because of this like kind of trauma that he's experienced um, related to his Mm -hmm. mother's life and death and so you sort of have some sense of that in the beginning and I think that is um, appealing as a character and it's also like attractive um, in an individual because um, yeah you just have that sense of like intensity and sort of um, something being really important to him. So are you a fan of some of the gothic classics or was there anything that was because I was thinking of Jane Eyre a lot as I was as I was reading your book, although yeah. he's a much nicer guy than Rochester. Rochester is actually kind of terrible. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I do think there's like some elements of Jane Eyre there in terms of like, so Kate, the archivist, kind of goes into 
and is um, working out of Theo's house with his, like, two kids there. So there's this sort of, like, governess element there, even though she's not um, at all, like, in charge of them in any way. Um, And, um, yeah, so I would say definitely, like, Jane Eyre and all of that kind of, like, super atmospheric gothic fiction like Castle of Otranto or even Northanger Abbey, which is a satire of it, but um, but still has that kind of like dynamic. And then also, um, I love the gothic aesthetic in like Southern Gothic um, literature and um, the kind of like New England boarding school gothic sort of um, theme like you sort of see in um, The Secret History, which is set in like a college in Vermont. Um, the Secret History by Donna Tart, And so those sorts of like moody, um, atmospheric books where there is this really um, complex, dark setting and like old buildings and um, this kind of like thread of violence that runs through everything is always really interesting to me. Mm-hmm. And it does seem like you can transport it to any setting. Like you were saying, this is sort of beach gothic and then... Um, I've seen there's a book coming out in a couple of months called Mexican Gothic that's like set in Mexico, but is a kind of traditional sounding Gothic novel about like a young woman going to a mysterious house. And it's interesting how these things can be carried out in in any setting because it's really about uh, like fear and desire and all these these things that are translatable in a lot of contexts. Um, so like another thing about the Gothic that shows up a lot in your book is we often see in Gothic stories uh, mad or unstable women who are locked away or institutionalized, not believed. Um, so as you know, this month on the podcast, we're talking about the archetype of the hysterical woman. And I think you have some very interesting depictions of this in your book because both Kate, the archivist, and Miranda, the photographer, struggle with mental illness in in various ways. So could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, definitely. Um, It was really important to me in writing this book. Um, I guess, you know, I think the thriller genre has, well, I mean, since the beginning of gothic fiction, as you're saying, like, there's been this kind of theme of um, women's mental illness um, at the sort of center of a lot of um, suspense fiction and crime fiction. But I also feel like even in, in the past 10 years, um, in particular, there's been a kind of um, a twist toward uh, toward like women's mental illness being kind of like a plot point almost. And so mm-hmm. um, basically like creating an unreliable narrator um, and having that be like kind of like the gimmick, um, and I, I guess like to in some works it's you know really successful and done thoughtfully, but I also think there are books where it's like you know mental illness is sort of treated as a gimmick or as like a kind of one note experience, um, and either as uh, something that is like. <sighs> Um, what would I, how would I phrase this? I guess just like that it will like be, um, kind of like a convenient solution or, um, it prolongs the mystery without maybe like thinking about some of the reality of the experience, um, for the women who are at the center, if that makes sense. So when I started writing this book, it was important to me to have, have, um, to represent mental illness in a way that resonated with, um, 
my and my friends' experiences with it um, and some of the complexity where I think that both Miranda and Kate, one thing that they um, have in common with their experience of mental illness is that it brings um, a lot of pain and suffering for them, but that it also brings them um, things that, um, that are positive, that feel like joy or creativity. And there's sort of this real mixture of experiences um, that I wanted to um, kind of elaborate on and, um, and pay tribute to. Yeah, because with Miranda, she's already a famous artist, but then after she has this sort of nervous breakdown and is institutionalized, it's like her work is even more valued and sought after. I thought that was really interesting, the kind of commodification of her as mentally ill woman. It's like people are, uh, yeah, like writing her off in a way. She can't trust her own experience in some ways. Her husband certainly uses it to his own advantage, um, and, but it is—it's like a, almost like a marketing thing for her her work, and it's it's so twisted. But like we see that where it, there are these like famous women who have nervous breakdowns, and all of a sudden like the public interest in them is at an all time high. It's like very fucked up that we're all so fascinated by this, you know? Yeah, and I think especially in Miranda's case, and I think this is true for a lot of um, high profile women who are in sort of similar situations. There's kind of this like fascination and like market valuation of their work. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, And there's like the illness seems to bring something um, really valuable or priceless um, and energetic to the way that their work is kind of consumed and discussed. But then at the same time, there's this sort of like deep fear or... um, yeah, there's like a deep fear about how to how to interact with them or treat them on um, an individual level. And so Miranda kind of has this experience of like the more famous she gets, partly because of her illness, the more um, isolated she also becomes and the more alienated um, she becomes from other people who are sort of um, struggling to... Uh, like want to be able to put her in a certain kind of box and understand her from a certain um, perspective. Yeah, there's always um, like the discourse around with male artists as well, but like the sort of creative genius who's also unstable um, and the fear that like if this person gets healthy and is like on a more even keel that they won't be able to create the work that they were creating before that's now like a lot of people may have um, monetary interest in so yeah I see like some of the men around her it's almost to their their advantage to keep her unstable and keep her in this box and she's really pushing against that yeah yeah exactly but I love uh, the way you use the archival documents to show Miranda's side of the story. Is that something that was always like when you came up with this idea, did you know it was going to be kind of a standard narration for Kate and the documents for Miranda? Or was that something that developed as you were writing? Um, no, that was always sort of one of the kind of like seeds of the idea. Um, I am an academic and have worked a lot in archives and with archival materials. And I'm sort of interested in that kind of like detective experience um, and wanted to explore that um, in the context of like a crime novel and think about the similarities between like the 
research as detective work and um, kind of like crime investigation as detective work. Um, so I always knew that I wanted to like tell the story through um, documents of Miranda's. What those documents were did sort of like change over time. I had this like original idea to tell that like there would be no diary and like <laughs> I would somehow tell her side of the story through like receipts and like you know <laughs> random records which like there are like a couple of those in there but I you know sort of was like quickly realized that that was not a way a good way to create like an interesting story that people want to read um so there is definitely some kind of like massaging and editing of um and curation of like what kinds of um, materials would be best for telling her story. But it was always part of the concept that that would be, um, be the format. Yeah, I, I love that so much because I'm, I have a library background and I used to work in an archive. And so I was like, just geeking out about all of the <laughs> archival documents. I love that as a conceit. I actually, when I was in graduate school, I worked for a year on, um, going through this collection of burlesque and striptease materials. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> it was so fun. But yeah, it was basically like I would sit in a dark, you know, windowless room and look at pictures of naked ladies all day. And it was probably my best job ever. Like, I'm going to be honest. <laughs> but it is interesting. Like, you have to read between the lines with these documents. Like, no matter how um, comprehensive a collection is, like, you aren't getting the full story. You're piecing it together. I thought that was really fascinating. And I love the diary as well. Like the parts where after Miranda has her son and she's starting to kind of fall into postpartum depression, that was so chilling because you're reading it and she sounds so reasonable. Like uh, she, everything she's describing that she's stressed out and he won't stop crying and everything. And then it just like slowly, subtly shifts into she's having this psychotic break and you're, you kind of go along with her because at first everything she's saying, you're like, yeah, of course, you're stressed out. You're like really suffering in this moment. And then you're like, whoa, wait, what? <laughs> it's really well done. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I think it also sort of speaks to, um, you know, we have like a sort of range of things that we as readers or as human beings sort of like think of as like normal behavior. And then there's a range that we think of as like abnormal behavior. Um, I'm using quote marks. I realize nobody can see that, but I'm using quote <laughs> I can marks hear it in your voice. normal and abnormal. And so... Um, I think I did want to play with, um, play with that and sort of challenge that, like, what's the moment at which it moves away from something that seems like a natural reaction to childbirth, um, into something that seems more, um, more, uh, why am I blanking on this word? Um, well, more medicalized, I guess, or like deserving of medical treatment. Um, so I wanted to sort of um, move with that. And ultimately, I'm, you know, I am glad that I ended up, I, I did quickly move into write into having her write a diary and um, the her voice came really naturally to me in the course of writing. And so I'm really grateful that I gave up on my really dumb idea to like tell a story through like car parking receipts or whatever I was going <laughs> to do. I have no idea. I don't think it's a dumb idea necessarily, but it would have been very challenging. <laughs> yes, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was already hard enough organizing like the dates and timelines of everything uh, that, uh, yeah, I think it, it worked out for the best that there's a little more, we get more of Miranda's voice. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, did you, I think you gave your copy editor a workout with that, I'm guessing. Did you oh, get a lot of notes poor, at that stage? I know, my poor copy editor. It's like, but, you know, the copy editor was wonderful and caught some amazing things <laughs> um, that were, I mean, embarrassing for me, um, but really glad that um, that they caught. It, it is hard because, um, like, keeping track of the dates um, throughout in the organization, but also... Um, as I was sort of writing it and trying to figure out like where the plot would intensify um, for each, because there's sort of these two interlocking narratives, you know, I would try to like move a scene around for pacing and then I would have to like completely rework the rest of the timeline. Um, because in, if you're just writing in like third person, um, you can, you know, you could, you can like massage it a little bit, but if it's like a diary or something, everything has an exact date. So you really have to think through like how many days does, would something take? Um, or like what would this, um, particular day of the week or time of the year be like? Yeah. We don't like to make it easy on ourselves, do we? Mm -hmm. Uh, so I would love to hear just as a fellow writer, like more about your process for how you planned all this out and like how long it took you to write it. I'm just fascinated, especially with something as complex as this book. Yeah, I mean, you know, I uh, I was talking about this to a friend last night. Um, I think that it I think it took me maybe about three years total from the time I like started working on it to um, the time I like absolutely like finished um copy edits I already had an agent when I started writing it so um, I signed with my agent on the basis of like another book um, and then we sort of decided to put that one aside and I wrote this one so there was like some stuff that was you know like a little bit sped up in that timeline Um, there wasn't the lull of like spending that time looking for an agent Um, so I I would say about three years and um, I had this I I think that I um, wrote the first few drafts way too fast and I did end up regretting that um, because I had like always read all this advice like oh you know just like write the shitty first draft just like get through it whatever but then I did that and it sort of like committed me to certain decisions that ended up not really being like good decisions for the book um, just in terms of plot and everything there were like a bunch of different drafts that had totally different endings and I rewrote the whole thing start to finish um, at least seven times oh, like, wow seven different documents. <laughs> so like li- like and we're you know we're talking about a book that like is like a hundred a hundred and ten thousand words long and so um, and like some drafts were more than that and obviously this isn't even counting like all of the stuff that like got cut at various points so like we're talking about like a million words probably right and I don't know that like all of those million words had to be written um I mean I guess they did for the book to reach its this book to reach its final state but um I am trying in the I'm working on my second book now and I'm trying to be a little bit more deliberate and thoughtful about the first draft um because I think I can sort of like push myself to write really quickly, um, but it doesn't always really end up being the most efficient in the long run. Yeah, it's hard because I always struggle with first drafts. I like want them to be perfect, which they won't be. They'll always suck. I know it's um, so rude. Why are they like that? <laughs> I know. But then if I like, I try to kind of find a middle ground because if I do too much planning, I get 
it almost is like my outline or whatever it is. It becomes this like perfect thing itself that then like the book can never live up to. I get like really obsessed with that stage of it. So it's like always about finding that balance where you can still be creatively free and generate new material, but you are like, like you said, being thoughtful and thinking about where things fit in. And yeah, I still haven't totally figured it out for myself. I always, I, I don't think we ever do. You just figure out how to write the book that you're writing. Yeah. Now, and I hopefully. think, yeah, exactly. I think that's true. Um, I don't like regret um, in s any of like the decisions I made in writing take me apart because I'm like proud of what it ended up being. Um, but there were moments when I felt like I regretted the way I wrote it, I guess, like the process. Um, but then, you know, I recovered from those. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I don't know if that answered your question um, really successfully um, about process, but. No, totally. Like, I mean, <laughs> like we always talk about like, oh, your process. But yeah, it is kind of just you're just like figuring it out as you go. I mean, that's what we're all that's what we're all doing. Yeah. Um, I will say that I don't um, I write in like Scrivener and I move things around a lot. So I don't. I write in a generally linear way, but not like perfectly linear. So um, I do like jump around a little bit more. Um, I don't know if that that's my only process insight, really. <laughs> yeah, I use Scrivener also because it makes it so much easier to move things around. And I know a lot of people are like, intimidated by Scrivener. But when I look at like when you get to the end of the editing process and you have to have everything in a Word doc because you're going back and forth with your editor, like that is so intimidating to me, seeing everything all in one document like the Scrivener. It's like in these little bite sized pieces that you can move around and it feels like less of a daunting task that's how I feel about it anyway I totally agree with you I think like I just can't like I can't keep track of anything when it's um in Microsoft Word I also for the longest time my like Microsoft Microsoft Word would just like crash anytime I got over like 10,000 words or something and I eventually discovered it was because like I had obviously like a virus infected version or whatever and oh, no. I downloaded a new version and now it doesn't crash but um, I've used Scrivener exclusively for like everything for probably almost 10 years now so I, it's it just like feels safer to me in the way that like word probably feels safer to um, to many people because they're used to writing in it. Yeah, I love in Scrivener. I'll like color code the different POVs and uh, it makes me so happy. It feels it makes it feel like it's organized, even if it's complete chaos. It's sort of like archival documents, right? Because it's all this like chaos, but they're in like nice little boxes and folders and they're yeah. labeled. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe that's why we both. I mean, I love my my brain is definitely one that like sorts and um, like I think in a very like structural way. And so um, it sounds like maybe you're also like that. Maybe that's yes. the kind of like mind that goes easily to goes easily to Scrivener. They should study us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that would be like a really interesting study that like four people in the world would read. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that true of a lot of studies? I don't that's know. true. It is true. <laughs> Uh, what's your process like when you write books? Um, I have this like really bananas process actually where I, mean, I use Scrivener, but I write um, everything out in like notes form where I'm just like telling myself the story like she says this, he does this and I'll like just kind of talk to myself like a crazy person um, <laughs> on the page and then I write everything out as a script. So just dialogue, stage directions to figure out what actually happens and who says what and like where they are in space 
and then I like adapt the script into prose. <laughs> I do, you know, I actually don't think that sounds that bananas because I do do that. Um, so if I'm having a lot of difficulty with like um, a conversation scene, like an important conversation, I'll try to do it. I'll do it as a script just so that I can focus on like the dialogue and communi- communicating things through the characters' voices. Um, so. I like that. That's a very cool process. I like that. I've never heard this thing at the beginning about like uh, that you said about like writing it out to yourself as if you're talking to yourself. Yeah, I will even I'll like write something and I'll be like, he says this. Wait, now he wouldn't say that. He'd say this other thing. Like, and I just leave it all in there. Like that whole thought process. I'm not trying to make it like pretty or like a synopsis. It really just my entire process is based around like tricking myself into getting over the fear of <laughs> that's like inherent in the whole creative process. Cause I spent so many years trying to write and I was just such a perfectionist. I would write like one paragraph and then stop cause it wasn't perfect. And so I have all these like tricks to force myself to write. That's good. Yes. I feel like I, I need more tricks. Um, <laughs> maybe I'll try this. I like it. I have been, I've been like doing more plotting in like, I've been using Excel for plotting, which, like, I don't think anybody recommends that as, like, a plotting Oh, tool. oh, I do that. <laughs> yeah, it's useful for, like, breaking down, especially, like, if you're dealing with, like, different characters who are, like, doing different things at different moments um, and know different things at different moments in the story. I feel like it's really useful for sort of, like, charting that out or blocking it out a little bit. I do that, but I also, this is going to be, like, interesting to no one. I'm just realizing I'm, like, so fascinated by this, and our listeners are going to be, like, yeah. Excel, really. But, no, I will, um, I make elaborate spreadsheets, but I'll also use in Scrivener, you know, you can set up metadata. So I'll, like, tag each scene with, like, who's in it and where it takes place and, like, the day and everything. And then you can look at it in Scrivener or export it to Excel. I did that once, and I sent it to my editor, and I think she was probably, like, okay. Like, <laughs> <laughs> calm down <laughs> like well oh this my is my goodness. process yeah that's so funny I love that I didn't even think about like exporting it from Scrivener to Excel um I'm yeah you totally can this yeah this is fascinating I mean I won't be offended if you decide to cut all of this out if it is boring to people but I think it's very interesting I think I, it's interesting <laughs> I like the window into people's creative processes because I feel like it gives me a sense of them as a person and as an artist, and also because I like to sort of just, like, steal many tips and try to, like, adapt them um, in order to, uh, yeah, to, to move forward myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, I always like to hear about other artists' processes, even if they're not writers, because it just demystifies it. I feel like there's a lot of... I mean, that was something interesting about your book, too, like seeing behind the scenes of Miranda and her work um, through the archival documents, because I think there is this like mystique around writers and artists. And um, we're all just like trying our best and don't really know what we're doing and uh, just muddling around with our Excel spreadsheets. And yeah, what did you say? Receipts. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, exactly. I do. um... I've been watching a lot of Project Runway recently, which I hadn't watched since, like, I don't know, like, 2008 or something, whenever um, it, like, I watched, like, the first few seasons of it, and um, I've been re-watching a lot of it, and I've become really interested in, like, the, fe- the different designers' processes and sort of, like, seeing them unfold and the different ways they kind of, like, think about um, 
their garments and they use a lot of words that are similar to words we use in fiction like oh like here's the story or have to like edit it Mm -hmm. um and so like thinking about those parallels has um has been really interesting to me so is that your um like coronavirus comfort watching right now it is yeah I mean I it's I find it I've been finding it really hard to focus on things um which I think a lot of people are feeling so I've actually even though I have this like stack of books that I like really want to read I just like have a really hard time focusing on um on reading um so I I've been watching um Yes, more TV. Uh, Project Runway is, like, great because, you know, it has that, like, there's something about, like, the competition structure that is, like, can be kind of soothing um, if it's not, like, too, you know, like, at your throat. Um, And then we've also been watching um, Tiger King. Oh, God, I keep hearing about this. Oh, my goodness. I don't understand. (laughs) I mean, it's so wild. I don't even know how to explain it. We watched McMillions on HBO before, and um, which is also amazing. I mean, I think McMillions is like just like the the way like it's just such a well done show. Also, um, but like that sto- the McMillions story takes like all these twists and turns, and you're like, oh, like we're on a windy road. Don't know where it's gonna lead next. And you watch Tiger King and you're like, oh, my God, like this car isn't even on a road. It's like turned into an airplane and it's just flying into the most wild land. Like just like there's all these there's like sex cults and murder and like, oh, my God, it's all around this like big cat community of like people who keep tigers imprisoned. And it is just like so strange. Um Yeah. I think I have to watch it just to know what people are talking about on Twitter because everyone is so obsessed with this, with the show. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's also it has we haven't finished it yet, but I think it has a lot of um, a lot of great uh, things to debate with people sort of like okay. points of view to to debate. So, yeah, yeah I've been watching a lot of Shit's Creek because that's like the wholesome content that I need right now but if this stretches on for too long who knows (laughs) yeah I mean yeah and actually I haven't watched any Shits Creek and I've always heard great things about it so maybe that's what I really need to like dive into it is a delight it is especially um the later seasons because I feel like at first they were still sort of finding the the tone it's like a little bit more broadly comedic and then um as it goes like you just I don't know I love all the characters so much I just want to spend time with them and yeah, I don't know. Something I've been thinking about with all the pandemic stuff as like someone who writes kind of dark and twisted books is like, are people going to want to read dark and twisted books? I feel like everyone wants fun, escapist, like Project Runway and Schitt's Creek, I guess, Tiger King. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. I mean, and I think everything right now is extremely hard to predict in terms of like, I mean, just everything in the world is so hard to predict right now, um, and especially, like, what psychologically people will want to gravitate towards. Um, but I do think that, um, you know, genres like horror or suspense or thriller present, like, a darkness and then often have some, you know, some kind of resolution. Um, mm-hmm. It might not be, uh, like, everything's tied up really neatly. It might not be that... Um, you know everything's like perfectly um, 
solved but I think like there's something comforting and cathartic about having the darkness of that experience and then um, the resolution at the end that people will continue gravitating toward and also you know sometimes I mean I love um, the romance genre and I love reading um, you know like lighter and happy books as well but I also think that there can sometimes be something very depending on like you know what state of mind I'm in that particular day there can be something very jarring about reading something so um light and comedic Mm -hmm. at the time at like a time when you know you're worried um about these like really huge questions of like survival so I think yeah I think there will still be a market for your dark books I'll still I'll still buy them (laughs) <laughs> and I'll say, like, even though your book has dark themes, obviously, as we've been saying, like, it doesn't have a dark feel like you don't re- end it and feel like hopeless. You feel like very uplifted. At least that's how I felt. Oh, good. Oh, that's great. I'm gl- I'm really glad you say that. I did think I think, um, you know, like I said, there were like a lot of different versions of the ending. And mm-hmm. um, I just went. Yeah, it, it just changed like so much. Like, uh even like the solution to the mystery was like very different at different stages. Um, oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, but I I think that um, I wanted it to like to feel like it was an ending that was true and like possible and honest, but also that had some kind of like hope or promise in it. Um, so I'm glad that you had that experience reading it. Yeah, absolutely. So did you ever have an ending that was like pitch black depressing or were they all kind of trying to get that vibe, but like coming at it from different angles? Mm, I think that they, I think that they, yeah, we're trying to get that vibe, but like coming from different angles. Um, I think that if anything in earlier versions, because um, I'm just figuring out how to phrase this without, you know, giving anything away, but yeah, no spoilers, <laughs> yeah, no spoilers, but, um, you know, there are these two narratives, Miranda's and Kate's, and they both need to wrap up, um, and have resolution at the end. And I think maybe in the earlier drafts, one thing that I struggled with was like having their resolutions balance each other. So not that they had to be like the same or, opposite or anything but they just needed to like somehow balance and like go together and um and I think that was that was hard for me in in earlier drafts figuring out how to do that Um, but I think it worked out in the end yeah I thought about that a lot with temper as well like I have two POV characters and I have one that's kind of on like a downward trajectory and one that's like kind of starting to free herself from the situation she's in and I wanted them to sort of pass each other and then end up in very different places even though they're like in the same physical place at the end so yeah it's um writing multiple POVs is always hard because you don't want it to seem like the same but you don't want it to be so dramatically different I think you did a really good job balancing that I don't know I I just love your book (laughs) oh thank you did you did you um have when you were like deciding how to end temper did you go back and forth about like whose voice you would end on no I always knew I that's the funny thing a lot of things about that book changed but I always knew the ending I knew like whose voice it would be in and I knew um like what would happen and I never 
wavered from that like almost everything else about the book changed but the ending like the day that I came up with the idea I knew what the ending was going to be I could just like see it oh that sounds so comforting <laughs> then you have to figure out how to get there yeah in, I was about like, to say it's not because you're like oh now I have to get to this like specific point um yeah um, that's not always the case for me but it was with that book where I just like knew exactly how I wanted to end it but the ending has been very uh controversial like a lot of people really hate it so I don't know (laughs) Ooh, um I actually haven't read temper yet so I'm really excited too um and then now I'm like especially excited to see which side of the controversy I fall on let um, me know whenever you whenever you read it but uh, which uh, I hope will be really soon like I said I've had a really hard time focusing on like any like literally reading anything um which is so wild because I feel like reading has always been such a comfort to me in difficult times but um just the past like couple weeks it's it's been hard for whatever reason um but temper's definitely on my list big time um, well, I hope you enjoy it, but if you hate the ending, please tell me, because I love hearing when people hate it, too. Oh, oh okay, great. Um, you're so psychologically strong. That's impressive. <laughs> I don't know. Like, it, it's um, interesting to me, like, when people feel passionately, like, whether they love it or hate it, that... Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like controversy is all... Like, the controversial ending that people debate, I feel, like, is the ideal in many ways, because it is, like so fun it's just so fun to like discuss that at the end like literally yesterday or the day before um Angie Kim who wrote Miracle Creek and I were just like on the phone talking about the ending of Severance by Ling Ma which I read over a year ago now I think and um I think I read it before it came out because it was like my publisher so I think I had an early copy and I like loved it and I've just debated the ending of that book with so many people um and we were just like going back and forth about our interpretations and it's just like such a satisfying moment of like connection um over books so i think yeah the controversial ending is a good it's a good place some mm-hmm. people definitely don't like the ending of take me apart so you know i guess that's i guess that's good news yeah i mean it's boring if everyone agrees wait yeah. so do you do you read your reviews Oh, um, I mean, I try, I try not to, but... It's okay, this is a safe space. <laughs> I know. I mean, I have, like, here's my situation, is I have, like, a thing that blocks me from opening Goodreads on Chrome, but wow. I still end up often going to look at Safari and, <laughs> and loading it on Safari. And it's hard because, like, I actually, you know, I love hearing from readers and it's awesome to feel like people are engaging with your book. Um, but then it can also just, um, you know, if there's something that you felt unsure about or were worried about and then someone kind of, like, confirms that, it can really um hit home but I also think that like because the book hasn't come out yet I mean we're having this conversation like a little over a month before it comes out and um I feel like once there are like lots and lots and lots and lots of responses um I might have um I might be like a little more immune to individual ones and me able to be able to read them um without you know 
hating my writing afterward. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I am on record as I always find bad reviews very, very amusing. Um, so I definitely read all of mine. But I will say, like, once you amass enough of them, they all start to, like, you'll notice certain themes showing up. And I swear I can, like, look at someone's, like, profile picture and guess what they're going to think. You start to, like, profile readers, which can mm. be interesting actually because i mean one of the things you're supposed to do when you're marketing your book is figure out who your ideal reader is and i feel like it's really valuable because i get a lot where it's like this person hated it and thought it was like vulgar and awful and then they're like a woman in their 70s from like the south or whatever and i'm just like well that's not my audience <laughs> you know like it's really it's interesting you can um gather a lot of like market research that way but it is it's hard not to take it personally because our, our books are our babies yeah um yeah, I think, and yes, they are, they are, we're like very attached to them um, in many ways. I totally just lost my train of thought. Um, like I was, I, I'm just so scatterbrained these days. I feel like my, my brain is like just kind of constantly going through like a sieve over and over again. Um, anyway, That's like the state of the world right now. Everyone yeah, is just. Exactly. Um, but yeah, but anyway, I mean, I do like reading, um, I, I like hearing from readers and I like like thoughtful engagement with anything I write. I mean, that's like why we publish right? so that people have um, some reaction. But there is something I also I think you also really like the like, like, OK, well, here's I'll phrase it as a question. Which would you rather have a one star review or a three star review? One star for sure. Yeah. Like there's something satisfying about that, too, because you've created such a. Um, such like a strong reaction in the person right yeah yeah like when I get, I get ones where, the, where people are like this is the worst book I've ever read and I'm like <laughs> it just I don't know it like tickles me it's weird <laughs> yeah yeah um I mean I feel like what a challenge like think of how many books they've read and like yours is the worst like that's such, <laughs> such an honor oh you know what I was gonna say um before my brain went through the sieve is that also I feel like writing thrillers we have a genre that's so capacious that um people go into reading thrillers with really different expectations. Like there's just so mm -hmm. many different kinds. And so sometimes people's expectations of what the book will be like are not um, the same expectations that, you know, another person will have or that we had writing them. And so I think that is also perhaps why some of the, um, some of the responses can be so strong um, because people often like a specific kind of thriller. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, the thriller genre is, I mean, it's always changing, but there's a lot of appetite for like really action packed thrillers with a lot of twists and everything. And like, well, your book, for example, is you, you said it was a literary thriller. Like that's totally accurate. It's, it's like quieter as they say, but there's still, I mean, there's so much going on between the characters. Like the stakes feel sky high, at least they did to me when I read it, but it's not like murders and action and you know it's like relationships and yeah exactly yeah psychology. I mean I think this is the most common I mean when I like secretly against you know the advice of like everybody in my life go and look at my Goodreads reviews I think this is like a common complaint is that they're like oh like it's not really a thriller and I think it is but it's true that it's not a certain kind of thriller um it is um yeah it's not like a sort of like you know, spy escapade that like moves across five continents and like 90 people end up dead and like 
Um, there's like a plot at the end to like diffuse a bomb. Like it's not that kind of thriller, but um, I think there's like hopefully an emotional intensity to it that um, creates some of that reaction. Um, Absolutely, there is. And I Absolutely. mean, I love spy thrillers that go across um, all the different continents and diffuse a bomb at the end. Like how satisfying and wonderful those books are. Um, but yeah, but they're just a very different kind of book. Totally. Well, this has been so much fun. It's so good to talk to you. And um, I usually ask people if they have like any events or anything they want to shout out. But I guess like right now, probably not. But do you have anything like surrounding the release that you're doing virtually or anything you'd like to tell our listeners Um, about? We're still yeah, we're still like really working it out. Everything is changing so rapidly, I think, for everybody these days that I don't know what's going to be happening around release. Um, I would say that I feel like I just ended with my final comment making it sound like my book is boring and I want to clarify that it's not boring. (laughs) 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 It is, it is like suspenseful and a mystery and exciting. Um, so the only event that I would promote would be, you know, you, the listener at home having, you know, reading my book, that would be great. (laughs) Yeah. You can pre-order it from an indie bookstore. Lots of them are doing delivery or, um, depending where you are, curbside pickups, you can get it the day it comes out, um, which is April 28th again. And yes, your book is absolutely not boring. I was like completely riveted the whole time I was reading it and it is intense and sexy and fascinating and I can't wait for more people to read it so that I have people to discuss it with because I feel oh, like I've yeah, I'm so excited. And it will also it, be everyone. available on um on audiobook and I am really excited. I haven't heard the audiobook yet, um, but I am really excited. I listen to audiobooks all the time, so I'm excited to like see um what comes of that. So if people would prefer to listen um to a book then that's also an available option. Awesome. And we will post links on the podcast social media when this episode comes out. Um, And thank you so much. Thank you so much, Lane. This has been awesome. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Unlikable Female Characters. Don't forget to subscribe. And you can also follow us on Twitter at UnlikableFCPod for updates, book recommendations, and angry feminist rants. Our website is unlikablefemalecharacters.com, and we're also on Instagram at unlikablefemalecharacters. Thanks for listening.